0: James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 if you have a Bible open up there Uh, and as you're opening up I want to say a word Uh, if you would pray uh, you might have noticed Woody in the order of service but not here Uh, Woody and Kylie and their family are uh, back home near Tallahassee for Kylie Kylie's home uh, Kylie's dad passed away on Friday. So many of you got to to meet Mr. Webb, and uh, he came to church here with them when he lived with him for a season. But he did go to be with the Lord this weekend, so Woody's there. He'll be preaching the funeral tomorrow, uh, and they'll be ministering there to Kylie's mom and her brother and his family as well while they're there. So pray for the Turners, if you would. Pray for Kylie. Many of you know what it means to lose a parent and to lose your dad, and it's not an easy thing. And Kylie and Woody are such an integral part of our church family, so if you think of it, reach out to them, tell them you're praying for them as well. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles open there, do me a favor and go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Now, before we read these words, I want to warn you, James has been reserved so far. He uh, and that, that probably doesn't make you feel good right now, but no, this is a pretty intense text James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read God himself is speaking to us beginning verse one come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, I I pray that you will open our hearts and minds, God, simply to receive your word and be changed by it today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God hates injustice. God hates injustice. He despises it. Sometimes I'm afraid of where we are in our hearts. I think so often many of us who are Christians are trying so hard not to be social justice warriors that we forget that God hates injustice. I think we are so busy sort of critiquing the way that the world misunderstands justice that we sometimes forget to actually reflect ourselves on the fact that God hates injustice and what is God's design for injustice justice. And we all recognize and know there are debates raging throughout our society and even in the church over the issues of justice in our country and in our world. Now I'll be the first to recognize and the first to put it out there. There's been a temptation for thousands of years now. There are all sorts of Christian denominations and Christian theological movements and theological revisionist movements that give in to the temptation for Christians just to simply walk in lockstep with the world and just to allow our view of justice to be defined by the spirit of the age. So that is, whatever the world says is unjust, I say is unjust, and that's basically the Christian view for some people. But we reject this. We know that justice is not defined by whoever happens to think this is just today. Whoever's the loudest or whoever is carrying the biggest stick is not the person who gets to define what justice is. We have to have a biblical worldview, and it's right for us at times to critique the way that the world misunderstands justice. But I also think, and I see it more and more among genuine biblical believers, that there's also a temptation to flatten the world out and to just sort of make it feel like there's no injustice in the world, there's no broad sense of sin in the world. They kind of think God is sovereign, some might say, so everyone already has their proper lot in life. And so we struggle sometimes with squaring up with what the Bible teaches on justice to a point that as we read a text like the one we read today, it makes some of us twitch because we don't know what to do with it. Because we live in a culture and a society that generally sees the rich as good. And then there's another side of our society today that sees any sort of riches or any sort of uh, economic inequality as pure evil. But as Christians, we have to square everything we, uh, we believe and everything we know up with the Scriptures, up with the Bible. Ultimately, what we have to come from is this. Injustice exists in this world. And God hates it. Now, it, does that mean it lines up perfectly with the way everyone in the world sees it? Of course not. But that also means that it doesn't, not necessarily doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And so often, I feel like for us, Baptist Christians, the kind of Baptist Christians we happen to be, I think we tend, right, as, as in our theological tradition, if anything, we tend more than anything to just kind of want to pretend like, oh, everyone experiences the world as I experience it. That's not always the case. Ultimately, we have to recognize injustice exists and God hates it. And in this passage in particular, God demonstrates his disdain for the sort of injustice that makes us most uncomfortable. Economic injustice. We are allergic to the idea that there might be some level of injustice done in economics. And furthermore, I think what this passage teaches us is that riches, riches, just the amount of money we have in our pocket or in our bank account, this passage is teaching us that it can dull our senses to the reality of who God is, and it can dull our senses to recognizing and disdaining injustice in the way that God sees it. it. It's easy for us to be dulled and lulled, into a sense of thinking everything's fine and everyone experiences everything just like I experience it. So this morning, I want to give you three points that are going to help you evaluate wealth in light of God's disdain for injustice. I want to help you evaluate your wealth and wealth in general in light of the sort of, I mean, I hope you're noticing. I mean, this whole time, every week, you know, I have somebody come up to me and say, Goodness gracious, preacher, when are you going to let up on us? It's usually Larry Furman. Where is he? Let's see if I can... There he is. You see how far away he's trying to get up there. He says, goodness gracious. Actually, what Larry says is, Marguerite can't take a beating like that every week, Brother Matt. Is normally what he says. We know what he means, Marguerite. Don't worry. But do you see the way he even even for James his tone has shifted? Do y'all see it? I mean, usually it's been like brothers. Don't you see he's trying to reason with people? I Man, he just takes the gloves off today, right? Come, you rich and weep and howl. When's the last time anybody got told to weep or howl in a First Baptist church? Now, James is telling us weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. He's trying to get through to us. And the reason is because James recognizes and the Holy Spirit recognizes, God himself recognizes the way that wealth and riches can bend our hearts away from God's view of justice. That's not to say they're all evil. It's not what the Bible teaches. That Some people will misrepresent the Bible, say the Bible teaches socialism, or the Bible teaches this, or the... Bible teaches that and I don't think that's the case at all but I do think we can look at this and evaluate wealth and evaluate how it makes us think about God and our neighbor I think if we really look at these passages and I'll I'll say one last thing by way of introduction I, I pray every week if you want to know the best way you can pray for your pastor some of you are watching and you're not members of the church or you're visiting today or you watch later or whatever else if, if I would encourage you to pray for your pastor in one way, I would encourage you to pray for him like this. Pray that he'll fear God more than he fears you. Pray, pray your pastor will fear God more than he fears you. Pray for fearless preaching. But I think if we will fearlessly look at a text like this, we can have our hearts moved nearer to the heart of God. Just everything's on the table, Lord. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. What does your word teach us? I think these three points are going to help us evaluate wealth in light of the fact that God hates injustice. So three points this morning. Here's the first. Remember there is a judgment day. Remember there is a judgment day. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Gold and silver don't rust, do they? What is he saying? That even your riches have corroded, they've rusted. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure when in the last days. Now many of you hear this passage and you think, whew, thank goodness. I get a week off. You know why? Because I'm not rich. Feels good, doesn't it? A friend shared a survey recently done by the Washington Post that evaluated how... Americans view their own wealth versus the wealth of the rest of the world. Those participating in the survey average guessing that about twenty thousand dollars a year is what the average person in the world brings home in terms of income every year. And so they, you know, most Americans think let's go pretty low here. I'm sure it's I'm sure the average is something like twenty thousand dollars a year. When the survey was done a few years ago, the the real answer then was twenty one hundred dollars a year. Two thousand one hundred dollars a year is the median income. I think. As of today, it's up to about $2,800 a year. So everybody got a raise. $2,100 to $2,800 a year is the average individual income or the mean per capita income in the world today. On top of that, the mean household income in the world is like $9,800. So not even in the ballpark of what we would consider to be even poverty here in the United States, the poverty line here in the United States. Furthermore, the same survey told Americans to guess what percentile they were in in income, and the average guess was about 67 percent, the 67th percentile, that they thought they were only richer than about 67 percent of the world, but the reality is that the vast majority of Americans are in the 90th percentile or higher in terms of wealth in the world. I don't say this to make you feel bad, and I don't make say this either for those of you who may be struggling financially or who may be in poverty I understand there's all kinds of ways to look at statistics and to understand these things but let me just put it like this more than likely if you're in this room right now or if you're living in the United States of America compared to the world that James lived in you are overwhelmingly extraordinarily wealthy overwhelmingly wealthy just I want you to pause for a moment And open your eyes and look at where you go to church. Just look at the grandeur that we're surrounded with every week. Beautiful, gorgeous things. Do you think someone like James could have envisioned a Christian church that would look like this? And I don't think it's a sin to have a beautiful building, obviously. Meeting it every week. But I want you to stop for a moment and really get a sense of how tremendously blessed we are of just the amazing ability we have to get out and ride down roads that are paved. We get one pothole and everybody gripes. There are people in the world who don't even have running water. Now think about it for just a moment. That means that a biblical warning to the rich would apply to almost everyone who's hearing this message right now. We are rich compared to, the, to human societies throughout the course of history. We are overwhelmingly mind-bogglingly wealthy as a society. And so there's a temptation for all of us in this world and in this culture and in this day and age to be blinded to the realities of injustice around us. It's easy for us to be blinded to the fact that we can be lulled and that we can be lured into a sort of view of the world that sees good today as good forever. That's what the devil wants you to think. What does that mean? Look at these things James is listing. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And the rich say, oh, miseries, whatever, do you mean? Well, he goes on to tell it. He starts to list out the sorts of things that the rich in his age would have enjoyed. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. It's one of the ways we display our wealth in so many ways is in the way we dress. And we believe, once we have riches, that they're ours forever. And yet they've rotted. They're mothy. Well, okay, fine, James. Clothes rot and moths get them. That's fine. And, of course, I've got different things. That, but, but let me just check the bank account. I'm sure the gold and silver is doing fine. They've corroded. And he goes a step further. What does he say? They've corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That is, these rich who James is addressing, he's showing the way that all the things that are good in this life will eventually be evidence against them and fuel for their judgment. That's what the Scripture teaches. Weep and howl, he says, for the miseries that are coming says you've laid up treasure in the last days i think we make a mistake i think we make a mistake i i think we assume at all times at any given moment that riches are always a good thing and you've heard stories and seen examples of somebody winning the lottery right and you see the 2020 special or something they talk about the way it ruined their life when they won the lottery And what do you say immediately what do we all say Wish my life could get ruined like that. Don't we? Man, if I'm going to be miserable, that's how I want to be miserable. I think we just had this mindset. If if only I had money, even those of us who know better, even those of us who try to live our life thinking money won't make me happy, deep down inside we still think, yeah, but it wouldn't hurt. But you see what the Scripture is teaching? You see what we so often miss? with great wealth, with great riches, also come temptations. There are temptations that come with earthly blessings. We often think there's no way it could be bad, but I don't think we spend enough time considering the temptations that come with riches and the way that it can lead us away from the Lord. I'm not saying everyone has to take a vow of poverty. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. But I will say that if I were you, what I would do is I would constantly be on guard against what riches can do to your heart. James gives us a principle. What does he say to them? You've laid up treasure in the last days. Every Christian who's lived since the resurrection has been living in what the Bible calls the last days. The final age has come upon us. And there's a uniqueness to the way a Christian ought to live in light of the reality that Jesus has come and that Jesus is coming again. We are living in a special age and we ought to live that way. And James says, what you've done during this time when you should have been looking to the coming of the Son of God, when you should have been spending your life pouring out for the sake of the gospel, when you should have seen the signs of the times and the reality that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead and you ought to be living as if he's going to come back again and make all things right and all things new instead of doing those things and living with a sort of biblical justice and an eye toward doing what's right before God and your fellow man. Instead, what were you doing? You were hoarding, piling up treasures, not wisely saving, but laying up treasure. James is revealing the heart of those who have hoarded and defrauded. They have totally missed the world in which they live. They have totally abandoned the reality of the place that God put them and the time that God put them. And instead of doing what they ought to be doing in the time they're doing it, instead, they're hoarding. They've not lived according to reality. And they've not lived knowing that one day they'll face God. Now, can't riches do that to you? Have you ever just had that moment? And some of us, listen, the human heart doesn't need a million dollars to start being wicked. Some of you think you're God when you walk into McDonald's and you look at that dollar menu and you've got a five in your pocket. You think, I deserve to be treated like a king who can buy anything on that dollar menu today at McDonald's. and You expect whoever that is across the counter to treat you just like that. Or if you walk... With all the money you've saved up into a car dealership. Now listen, they deserve everything they get at a car dealership. I understand. (laughs) Some of you walk in with all the money and you expect a certain thing. We start to think we're God when we have a certain amount of money. And some of us live our whole lives that way. Because we say, we've laid up all this treasure. But the Bible says that's not always a net good thing. Second of all. Second of all, remember first that you, there is a judgment day. You will face God one day. Second of all, remember the oppressed. Remember the oppressed. I think one reason we forget the oppressed is because we've forgotten the Old Testament. We've missed the way that God's people have been oppressed for centuries. So much of the ethics of Israel were rooted in the fact that they once were slaves and they once were mistreated. I think we've missed a lot of that. Many of us, rightfully, I think, are troubled by a lot of what we see on the news right now. Everybody, it seems to some of us, is arguing that they're oppressed. And I agree that we've seen some lunacy out there in terms of everyone seems to be oppressed anymore. And listen, I get how a victim mentality is such a huge hindrance for people believing the gospel. Because really what the gospel teaches us is ultimately there was one supreme victim in human history. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if if you're not him, then you ought to just be thankful that God gave you another day to believe and repent. We rightfully have concerns about victim mentalities and a sense of entitlement. But sometimes I think that we're more concerned. And that we're working so hard to prove that everyone isn't oppressed. That we forget that at times in the world, and even here in the United States at times, people really are oppressed. It may not be systemically, it may be in individual situations, but there really are such things as oppressed people. And sometimes I wonder if we're rolling our eyes so hard at the world that we're totally missing the heart of God. That we're so busy trying to say, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous. When was the last time we looked at the text and read, Come you rich, weep and howl. And what does the Bible say? What does the Scripture say? Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And I tell you, in this day and age, in in James' world, not every harvester was a Christian. These aren't just believers who have been oppressed. These are people in general. And the Bible says the Lord hears the cries of the oppressed. So I ask you sincerely, are we mocking the idea that everyone's oppressed so hard that we've forgotten that there really are people who are oppressed and that they're near and dear to the heart of God? Are we passionate about taking the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to the Onesimuses of the world and telling them that though you may have a master today, he will be your brother through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their wages were held back by fraud. And the Bible says they're crying out against their defrauders before the Lord. As Christians, we have to keep our ears and our hearts open to hear the case of the oppressed because God cares about those who are oppressed catch that? Do you get that? If we're supposed to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, shouldn't we be the first people that folks who need justice go to? Shouldn't we be their primary advocates? Now listen, we have to be wise as serpents. We have to be careful. We can't just give in totally to the spirit of the age and recognize and see that just everyone's oppressed and go off the rails. I I get that. I understand that. But I don't see that as the main problem in the church today. I don't see that as the biggest issue. The biggest issue I see is whenever we see someone who's hungry or needy, what's our first thought? wonder what they did to deserve that. I bet they're lazy. wonder why they won't work. Go volunteer at the mission center. Go spend time with people who are really in need. And more times than not, you'll start to see... Things in their life and things in their heart and you realize it hadn't been for this moment in my life or this time when God happened to be gracious to me or if it wasn't for this thing that happened to me, I could easily be in their shoes. Ultimately, we recognize that we believe the gospel, the one ultimate solution to the world's problems and the great equalizer among all people everywhere. And some of us may be too big for our britches, and God needs to cut us down to size so that we can make it into the kingdom. But some of us may be so mocking and ridiculing to those who think they're oppressed that we've missed those who desperately need the gospel because they feel outcast by society. And they think, if the powers that be in this age couldn't love me, I'm sure God can't. And how wonderful would it be if a humble and loving Christian came to them and said, You know, those people that think they have all the power in this world, they're small potential potatoes let me introduce you to the one who has all the power in this world and let me tell you about how he became even more lowly than you are and let me tell you about how he was oppressed and you think that your oppression is a problem but he was totally oppressed by everyone and he emerged on the other side totally victorious and today you can repent of your sins and be totally and completely welcomed by a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine This world is not your home. And you may be mistreated and poorly treated in this world, but let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Or you could just say, get a job. It's our choice. But we have to recognize the gospel has implications for how our heart functions toward those who are being hurt or mistreated. And if we are going to honor Jesus, and if we are going to honor His gospel, I hope and pray that we can just pump the brakes a little bit on mocking those around us and instead see if we can be gracious and loving to people who are struggling in the world around us. Remember the oppressed. And finally, my hope and my prayer Is that we'll evaluate our wealth before God. Evaluate our wealth before God. We 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 so often want to start by fixing the world, right? Man, I'll tell you. You know, we all do this, don't we? You know what's wrong with the world today? Anybody ever said that? How many times you said that this morning on the way to church? Paul, you know, turn the radio off for a second so you can you can fix all the stuff they've just said. All right, we'll turn it back on now. I do that. We all do that kind of have this tongue-in-cheek saying I have to Whitney sometimes. So, you know, if they just asked me, I would have told them how to do that. We so often want to start with the world, but let me tell you where I think we should start. We should start with our own hearts. What do y'all think? You don't get to a sinful world without sinful people. And the Bible says if there's sinful people, you may want to reject that category, but I don't think you should because the Bible teaches it. So if there's sinful people... I've got news for you this morning. You're one of them. You're part of that group. There's so much out there to be overwhelmed by. Why don't we just start right here? Why don't you just start in that chair you do your quiet time in in the morning? Why don't you just start right here in your own hearts? And what does the Bible say? He says this in verse 5. First, he says, The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savaoth, the God of armies. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and in doing so, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Luxury and self-indulgence at the expense of others is a problem. And further, luxury is a way that we can be dulled to the joys And glories of who God is. Now, I'm not saying you can never have luxury. I think there's uh, good examples in the Bible of the way that God wants us to enjoy the world He's given us, but we have to be careful not to be lulled into living only for this present life and this present world. And it's easy when you're surrounded by luxury and when you're self-indulgent, it's easy to think this is how things will always be, and there will always be a servant there to feed me grapes, and I'll always have all that I ever need because my own hands have given it. And the Bible says sometimes when we live that way what we're doing is really fattening our hearts like a cow out in the pasture preparing for the slaughter it tastes good today but it won't be good in the future who are you depending on on yourself or on God because if we're depending on ourselves then we have a rude awakening coming when we meet our maker and the reality is that when we make room For injustice in our hearts. When we say there are categories which we want to let the world define for us, God can't really speak into this. I don't want to be a SJW, so I'm just not going to talk about this sort of thing. Or or you you say, I don't want to be one of those Christian fuddy-duddy types. I want to make sure that I recognize everyone's oppressed. And we sort of cut our hearts off from God actually speaking His view of justice, which is the only one that matters into our lives and into our hearts. What we wind up doing is creating room and space over time for really Horrible things to happen. And James gives us this picture here of what has happened. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. I think James is talking about their contemporaries, their friends. and They don't resist because they can't. But think about the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not resist evil, not because he couldn't, because he didn't, to save us. And I hope each and every one of us will be pointed to his gospel, as the only solution for a heart that is obsessed with riches, a heart that is indifferent toward injustice, and a heart that is satisfied with sin. Only the gospel can transform us from the inside out. And what that gospel does is it begins to make us see our Father's world differently. And we begin to start to pray, "Our Father, we pray your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we begin to want to see this world transformed by the gospel. We can't flatten it out and say everyone's just the way it is. That's not all we do. We primarily preach the gospel. But we begin to try to help and serve and love people because that's what our God has called us to because His view of justice is what matters more than our view. We must be just people. And we must make sure our eyes and our focus are on God and not what we can earn and what we can make and what we can build with our own hands, but on God and God alone. And we must let His gospel call us out of the sin which so easily entangles us and call us to a heart of compassion and mercy for those who are desperate sinners before a holy God. That's my prayer for each and every one of us. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I I, I want to give you an opportunity today to put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, you take this moment now as this time of reflection is played. We, we can't open the altar quite yet, but you can. God can do business right where you are, I promise. You pray to Him today if you've never trusted Jesus for the first time. You may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I, I, it's true. My heart's not been where it needs to be on this issue. You, you take some time to reflect on this right now. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. After the service is over, I'd like to talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. You take some moments here to reflect right now, after this prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together and to hear from your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.